0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen, and this is Molly. So, Molly, on the podcast, we've had a couple of discussions about birth control. Yes. And in response to that, we've gotten some listener mail. From a number of women who, uh, made, talked about how birth control does not work for every woman, especially with, uh, the hormones. Um, a lot of times they would try different, especially oral contraceptives and the hormones would just kind of throw their body out of whack. And, uh, it was a really frustrating process for them. And along those same lines, uh, some of those same listeners brought up the IUD, which is a form of birth control that we're hearing about a little bit more. Um, in the media. Yes. But this is truly, and I'm stealing this from you because you mentioned this earlier, this is truly something that our moms probably never told us
1: because
0: the IUD has a storied past.
1: Oh, yes. I'm sure there are women of a certain age listening to this podcast and hearing that we're going to start talking about IUDs, aka intrauterine devices. Mm -hmm. And they're probably shocked. They think we're about to advocate death- and awful, the awful. Infertility. Infertility. Awful yeah. things for, for women out there. But, uh, the IUD is really experiencing sort of a resurgence in the United States. But the question we want to talk about today is why is it even having a resurgence? Why is it so unpopular to begin with? Because when you start listing the positives, it's great. It's 99% effective as a birth control method. Uh, there's a huge upfront cost, a few hundred bucks to insert it, but then, uh, you know, there's, that's it. You don't have the monthly cost of something mm-hmm. like birth control. But only two percent of women in the United States use it. Two percent of women who are on birth control. Why? So before we answer that question, Molly, I think that we should
0: just briefly say what exactly the IUD is. Let's. Let's. Uh, it's different from the pill. You uh-huh. don't. You don't eat it. You don't. You don't shoot it. <laughs> I guess the closest thing you could uh, you could compare it to would be the ring because it's a. Uh, it's a. About an inch long and it's T shaped and a gynecologist inserts it into the uterus where mm-hmm. it stays. And then there are a pair of strings that uh, hang down from it.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the United States, there are two main brands of it. One of them has hormones that'll shoot out some progestogen into your uterus every so often. And then the other one is made of copper. And it doesn't have that um, hormone shot, which is why it's such a good option for women who can't take oral contraceptives for one reason or another. It's just there's none of that hormone jumping around. Right. And
0: basically what the IUD does is it, it blocks interaction between the sperm and the egg. So the sperm can never fertilize the egg and never
1: make a baby. Mm hmm. 99% effective. And what happens is you install it and then you forget about it. You know, some birth control methods like the pill, you have to take something every day at the same time. Right. Whereas with these, you can just put them up there and leave them for five to 12 years.
0: Right. The hormonal one lasts five years and then the copper option lasts up to, like you said, 12 years.
1: But we'll get back to our current options in a minute. But first, let's go back to the 1970s, the... I guess the word would be heyday for the IUD in the United States. About 10% of women used them then.
0: Right. This was developed around the same time as the pill. Um, and a lot of women started using the IUD. But then in 1973, it all came crashing down when uh, there was a series of congressional hearings um, about a specific IUD called the Dalcon Shield that was linked to a lot of uh, deaths from septic miscarriages. And it was also linked to pelvic inflammatory disease and then infertility caused by that.
1: Right. So doctors would only want to prescribe them for women who had already had families because there was such a huge link in people's heads with infertility that they didn't want to take the chance on a young, fertile woman having her life ruined by this birth control method. Um, but, you know, part of the problem was is that at that time they weren't doing a lot of testing for STDs. And so a bigger marker of how you become infertile is an untreated case of gonorrhea or syphilis or the like. And these women had these STDs that went unnoticed and sort of, you know, there's just unfortunate linkage between the IUD and the infertility. Right. The way the those strings were designed that that hang down from
0: the IUD, it actually um kind of drew the attracted the bacteria further up into a woman's cervix and uterus, just making it. Even the infection
1: even worse. Yeah, there was a lot of pelvic inflammatory disease. Uh, Kristen, before this podcast, described this uh, unfortunately designed object as a bacterial straw. Yeah. Because basically, the strings that they use now on IUDs are much different than that original design, which really did just sort of suck up all the bacteria and leave it there.
0: But at the same time, uh, this this bad press did not seep over to uh, European and
1: Asian women as much at all. Right. When the U.S. pharmaceutical industry just basically stopped researching this and making this that effect wasn't felt elsewhere yeah
0: and the interesting is uh today china is one of the leaders in iud development it's a very uh, popular birth control option in asia and in france i think 23 percent of women who are on birth control use the iud as opposed to
1: like you said two percent of women in the united states yeah in china like you said they're the big leaders in this 45 percent of married women use an iud Mm -hmm. it's pretty pretty staggering yeah, so now we're kind of seeing the resurgence, the return
0: of the IUD as a safe and reliable form of birth control in the U.S., uh, I think particularly because of these two products that you mentioned, the Mirena and the Paragard, that have been – tested and, and deemed very safe to use.
1: Right. Uh, Mirena is the one that we've been talking about that releases the steady amount of hormone directly into the uterus. And even if you are sort of susceptible to the hormonal shifts of an oral contraceptive, there's some evidence that if it goes directly into the uterus, you might feel less of an effect. Um, but that's the one that's good for five years. And the bonus is that it may actually make your period lighter or non-existent, uh, one possible benefit, there may be some spotting, but that's one possible benefit to this. Right, and on the flip side
0: of that, the Paragard brand IUD, which is the one that's made out of copper, um, has been shown to increase bleeding. You're, you'll probably have a much heavier flow for uh, the first few weeks after it's inserted, but um, gynecologists um, say that that will taper off.
1: Now, one effect of this sort of generational gap about knowledge of the IUD is you may not be able to easily find a doctor who can insert the IUD. Uh, they did some study where, you know, people in medical school very rarely learned in lectures how to insert one. You know, if they happened to see one when they were out on rounds or observing another doctor, that might be how they learn. But now we have a lot of doctors who don't necessarily know how to insert the device and may not recommend it to their patients because they're still in that old research mindset.
0: Right. And being able to correctly insert the device is a huge part of whether or not it's going to to work for a woman because there is a chance that after it's inserted, if it's inserted improperly, it could slip or shift and uh, it's not going to a, either work effectively, or um, it could actually cause uh, pelvic perforation, um, which can heal back, but you know, it would still be cause of some discomfort.
1: It's pretty rare, but interestingly, it seems to happen most to young women who haven't had children. We mentioned earlier that doctors tended to, to recommend this form of birth control for women who had had their families. But it's still a perfectly legitimate birth control for women who haven't had babies yet. It just might be harder to insert, and there might be more of a chance that it would sort of dislodge itself in the first few months. So it's very important that women who choose this method uh, do self-examinations regularly to make sure that the string from the IUD is still about where it was before. The length mm-hmm. of the string hasn't, you know, it hasn't disappeared. It hasn't gotten longer to indicate it's coming out. You do have to check that pretty regularly.
0: Right. And as far as availability of an IUD goes. You might have to do some searching around. Um, for instance, an article published in Slate magazine found that only 58% of
1: family planning clinics in the U.S. even offer the IUD. And even those that offer it may not be as willing to give it to these young women who haven't had children because of that old research, but also because it's important to remember that like oral contraceptives, uh, the IUD does not protect against sexually transmitted diseases. So it would be preferable to have a woman who's in a long term monogamous relationship, you know, get this method of birth control.
0: Yeah, and if uh, you are a woman who's thinking about um, possibly getting uh, an IUD inserted, um, the American family physician uh, has some characteristics of good candidates for IUD use, and among those are women who uh, have a problem remembering to take their oral birth control um, at the same time every day, um, women who are breastfeeding, uh, women who are at low risk for sexually transmitted diseases, um, women who are finished having children because there have also been studies that show that uh, the IUD can be even more effective than tubal ligation. And cheaper. And cheaper over the long run. And uh, finally, women who want a reversible long-term and cost-effective birth control method. I think those three factors right there are pretty huge selling points.
1: Yeah, and let's talk about the reversible thing real quick. In a lot of other countries, they – get IUDs instead of having a tubal ligation just because you can change your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes women do make that decision that they're done having children, but for whatever reason, then later they regret it. And so the chance of regret can be lower if you have this reversible method, because as soon as you take it out, baby factory is ready to go. <laughs> ready to go.
0: And on, on the flip side of that, uh it takes effect once it's inserted pretty quick, quickly as well. I think even faster than oral contraceptives. That is true. But always remember that the IUD does not prevent against STD. So condoms in that case are necessary. Good job, Kristen. That's my public health announcement. I like it.
1: Of, of the week. So that's a little bit of information on this non hormonal method of birth control. Um, you know, definitely ask your doctor if you're interested. It's it's going to have to be a discussion between you and the doctor. Everybody's body's different. That's
0: true. And if you want to do some research on the IUD before you head over to your doctor, there is a lot of research out there, especially on Planned Parenthood's website and American Family Physician if you want to learn some more about that.
1: Yeah, and I'll give a quick shout-out to Kate Klonick at Slate who did write the article that Kristen mentioned earlier that served as a lot of our – uh that provided a lot of the research that we used in this podcast. Yes. Thank you. So, just like every woman's body is different, every person's reading list is different. Ooh, nice transition, Molly. Uh, to Lister Mail. To Lister Mail. Let's do someone's reading list. Today's reading list comes from Zoe, who is 13 and lives in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, Zoe has a very impressive reading list that that makes me feel a little bit ashamed about how short mine is because not only did she send us 32 books that she's read this summer, she's read most of them twice. Wow. So she is a reader. Some of her books include Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie, The Sorceress by Michael Scott, The Princess and the Bear by Matt Ivy Harrison, Rose Bride by Nancy Holder, Snow by Tracy Lynn, and Sherlock Holmes, Volume 1 and 2 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. As well as many Louisa May Alcott books, which is nice to see girls reading. Little Women being one of my favorite books. I was a big fan of that myself, Molly. Wow. Oh, see, even though we're all different, we can find common ground. Yes.
0: And if you would like to learn more about what Molly and I are doing day to day here at How Stuff Works, you should head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And you can find our blog and other articles about, uh, IDs, birth control, and uh, reproduction over at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?